Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. Thank you so much for joining me on today's show which I will tell you about our special guest in just a moment, but I want to start by saying thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for helping make us one of the fastest growing podcasts in America. Also, just this past week, we crossed the 100 subscriber mark on our YouTube channel. So now officially, it's youtube.com slash the thriller zone. I know the little things, they get me excited. Now on today's show, Alma Katsu, is the author of Red Widow, and this is a page-turning thriller with espionage, Russian intrigue, CIA, and a whole lot more. Oh man, I really enjoyed this book, and I enjoyed the interview even more. So how about I get ready to talk to Alma here on The Thriller Zone. She's waiting in the green room. Alma, welcome to The Thriller Zone. Thank you, thank you yes. for having me. Yeah. Uh, we are going to get this to this beautiful book, Red Widow, uh, by with Alma Katsu in just a couple of minutes. And by the way, I got to take a quick moment. Anybody who follows this show knows I am a geek for covers, and your covers are banging. I mean, they're beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, Putnam does a, a really amazing job on the covers. I love the hardcover cover too. Well, is that the one? Um... I don't know that I've seen it. So I haven't seen a different. Let me get thing. it. Let me get oh, it. Can okay. I, can I vacate the thing for a second? I think I've got one in the house here. Please do. I'll just sip my toasty writer's block coffee. <laughs> here it is. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, really nice. Really nice in person, too. So for both the paperback and the hardcover, they did a great job. Yep. Yeah, that is amazing. I think I saw the hardcover in the form of a uh, an animated, uh, almost like a trailer or something on your website, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, yeah. Putnam does does the animations too. Really nice job. Yeah, big uh, big applause to Putnam because they always put out such quality work. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And, and while I'm at it, uh, I, I'm going to jump ahead. I'm going to be all over the place. So just roll with me. It'll be all fun. I promise it won't sure. hurt. <laughs> but uh, old school. I love bookmarks. Okay. It's the easiest. Writers, pay attention here. It's the easiest, cheapest way to do a little publicity. So here, coming to paperback at 3-122. Flip it over. Here's her next book, which is coming out in uh, April. We'll be talking about here in a minute. Super easy, super inexpensive, and P.S. Look what it does. It slides inside your book and holds your place. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. It's amazing. Well, you know, I've been around a long time and having swag was important. With the pandemic and not being able to do so many live events, you know, it's kind of fallen behind, but now we're starting to do live events. I'm doing conventions and stuff. And so, yeah, I said, we got to get some bookmarks. Yeah. You feel naked without it. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an easy little thing. And I, you know, I'm a big fan of swag and coffee mugs and, you know, blah, 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 but a bookmark, right? Cheapest, easiest. And it's visual. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Okay. Uh, here's the other tangent I want to go to. I'm looking at your website cause it's so beautiful. 
and you have the fervor, which is next, folks. Don't get confused. We're going to be coming back to, of course, Red Widow. But the fervor, this is what I want to get to. I thought I loved the uh, U.S. version, which is coming out uh, 426.22. But the U.K. version is so cool. Isn't it, though? Yeah. Titan does really interesting because they do a lot of genre books and horror and fantasy and everything. I think they're kind of really in tune with that vibe. Yeah. And yeah, I've had a lot of horror people say they really like that cover. And, and I'm going to get ahead of myself. I realize that. But so um, Red Widow, easily uh, thriller, CIA, espionage, etc., Russian, blah, blah, blah. And Fervor is horror. So so that I don't get confused. So you're multi-genre writing, which I totally love, right? Well, thank you. Yeah, I started out actually um, with the trilogy, and this was over 10 years ago. That's a bit more in like the fantasy supernatural realm. And then um, started writing the historical horrors. They're very, very much like historical fiction with just a, a little supernatural element running through them. And then I got the opportunity from my publisher to try espionage just because we thought it'd be fun. And yeah, so I've been very lucky, but very different genres. Okay, before, <laughs> hey, wouldn't it be fun to try some espionage? Now, wait a second. You worked CIA, NSA, RAND, RAND, uh, which, honest, I have to look that up because I didn't know it was an American nonprofit global policy think tank. It's technically, it's called the FFRDC, Federally Funded Research and Development Center. And it's, uh, it is, right, non-governmental. It's, it's one of, it's a formal type of, um, research institute that government agencies can draw on yeah so i worked there for a few years so that's why i know this well but you spent 30 years in intelligence right yes i did so here's what's interesting it sounds almost not counterintuitive but you went in this direction then you kind of came back in this direction right Yes. I mean, I was working in intelligence, but I wanted to be a novelist before I went into intelligence. And I, we can go into all, you know, I kind of just did it for experience to not expecting that I would have a whole career in it. <laughs> and it wasn't until I was about halfway through the career, I decided to go back to writing fiction. And I wrote the kind of book I wanted to write, not necessarily a spy novel, um, although I did try writing those. I just didn't write a great one. Um, the Taker ended up you know, being bought and we published it and all that. And it was towards sort of towards the end of my career in intelligence. I didn't sell it until I was 50 years old. So that's where it gets a little messy. And I didn't think I should write a, uh, try to publish a spy novel until I retired. So I, we sold Red Widow about the time I was retiring from the federal service. Cause it gets a little tricky if you're still working for them sure. to write a spy novel. There's just extra obligations they put on you that make it hard to public do publicity and things like that. What a fascinating story. Hey, I wanted to, uh, as I, I made a note here with over 30 years in intelligence, your work drips with authenticity. So I'm sitting here thinking, oh, I wanted to drip with authenticity. So I think I'll go work for the, you know, the CIA and stuff for like, I don't know, 30 years. And then I'll, then I'll write. That's amazing. If you have any energy left, yes, you can write a book. Because here's my bigger point. Uh, Hey, I want to write up David. I want to write about a detective. So I'll go hang out with the detective. I want to write about a, a police captain. Hey, I'll go hang out at a police station. No, <laughs> you get into the business and uh, build up all this fabulous history and then you write it. That's 
it, it's weird. I mean, I never really intended to write a spy novel. Yeah. Um, when I was in a graduate program for writing and I was working then and, you know, you meet agents and editors and they would say, well, with your background, you really should write a spy novel. So they kind of put the idea in my head. But it's, you know, a lot of um, stuff that is written about espionage is not true. And as I'm finding out now, because uh, we're doing a TV series and I'm dealing with writers and what they want to put in them, I, I see why the stuff ends up in TVs and movies the way they do, because they kind of, all they have to draw on are what they've already seen in TV and movies. And so you perpetuate these myths that this is how intelligence works. And it's not. It's very different. That is so funny. Jan said the same thing. He was on the show back in December of last year, the gentleman who introduced us for my listeners who don't know that, Jan Newman. And uh, he said the same thing. He said, what you see on television is like hardly even close to reality. And we, the viewer, go, oh, is that how that happens? And we just assume it is. So... Because, you know, viewers and readers want action and excitement. They want to be taken out of their lives. But the reality of intelligence is it's a lot more about tweaking and nudging things yeah. behind the scene. So if you end up getting to the point where you're running down the street, waving a gun and chasing a bad guy, yeah. it, you, your intelligence operation has failed. <laughs> it's supposed to be operating in the shadows. And if you're lucky, your adversary never knows what you did. Oh, wow. It's hard to dramatize, you know? That kind of blows the lid off of it for for me, Alma. I gotta tell you, I'm not saying you're popped my balloon. You've just blown the lid off of it. Hmm. So that's the difference between books like Jean Le Carré, right? And you know, uh, what's his name, Jack Ryan, or you yeah, Creature, uh, right? That's the difference between them. So I'm a little bit more in the Le Carré camp. Well, uh, this is a good time to insert this, uh, and I love. You know, besides the cover, I love the blurb. This is wicked great. S.A. Uh, Cosby uh, blurbed your book by calling it equal parts Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, and Killing Eve. Yeah, he's wonderful. He's wonderful, both of which uh, are my favorite genres. And, I mean, bam. I love both of those movies. How did that make you feel, Alma, when you got that kind of a blurb come across your desk? I was amazed that he said that. I could kiss him. Next time I see him, I probably will. Um, because it captures a lot of what I was trying to do. I, when um, Sally, my editor at Putnam, said, you know, why don't you think about writing a spy novel? I knew the kind of story I wanted to tell, which probably isn't your average spy novel. One is I really wanted to focus on what does it take to, what does it mean to the individual to do this line of work? Because it's, it's, you know, not to cry. We're all happy to have a job and, and we want the, we're, you know, grateful for the opportunity to serve our country. But it does demand a lot of you that people really aren't aware of. You have to give up like all your privacy. You have to be completely candid with, you know, whatever agency you're working for, CIA, whatever. That's just what having a security clearance calls for. And then secondly, I really wanted to show what it's like for the women who work in intelligence today because we're not that well represented in pop culture, whether it's movies or TV or books. And while there are a lot of popular books about women in intelligence, they're all historical fiction. They're from World War II. And, and that's, they're great stories. I worked with a couple of those trailblazers. You know, when I first started, they were leaving the industry. So I understand they're great stories, but it kind of gives the lopsided impression that 
you know, that was the time for women. And it's very, and also they're often um, presented sort of as like talking dogs, right? Like she could be a spy, but only she, other women need not apply. Right. And, you know, and then the things they have them do are sometimes kind of dubious. I really wanted to show what it was more like for women. So it's interesting. Red Widow was interesting in that the main character is a woman. The adversary is a woman. There's a lot of strong women in this book. That is one of the things I have to admit is I loved about this because you used the best word was misrepresented. Lindsay Duncan. I mean, she's likable for so many reasons and she's, She's scared and she's broken at the same time, but really super strong. And I, I just loved her character. Oh, a lot of us uh, in intelligence are like that. We're broken, but we're super strong. So yeah, it's very true to life, I have to say. Well, maybe it's like the axiom about drama. I mean, if you don't have conflict, then is the story that interesting, right? Oh, you absolutely have to have conflict. And that's the interesting thing about a career in intelligence is there's always conflict. There's conflict on so many levels. You know, there's the personal conflict and there's always the bigger geopolitical conflict that you're interested in and, you know, how the pressures of one might affect your personal life and vice versa. So, yeah, it's dripping with conflict. You know, this makes me think of something. Uh, David McCloskey, author of uh, Damascus Station, was on a couple months back and he said something that you, that you just triggered. Similarly, he says, you know, everybody thinks that working at the CIA is so super cool and it's all action and intrigue. Oh. And he goes, uh, it's so little of that that you wouldn't even believe it. <laughs> right. It's very, uh, you know, for good reasons. You don't really want a lot of um, turmoil in something, a mission that's so complex and important, a lot rides on it. You want it to be more predictable. So, you know, there's a lot of procedures and such in place to keep the drama down, actually. There's sure. always gonna be a certain amount of drama, but you wanna to try to minimize that, you know, um, as, a, as a general rule. Sure. All right, I'm gonna go for, I'm gonna go back to Lindsay in a second, but I wanna take two steps back. And that is, I mean, I'm honored to say that we have yet another master's degree holder on the show, Johns Hopkins University, right? Yeah, got yeah. my writing degree in the Hopkins program. I mean, uh, you're now my, I don't know how many that makes, maybe third in the last couple of months. And this is a question, Alma, and I, I, I love your opinion on this. You know, there are a lot of people who say, you know, if you're gonna be a serious writer, you've got to get a master's degree. While other people, maybe they don't say it with that kind of an accent, but uh, while other people, <laughs> other people say, you know, it's not really essential. And, but the people that I've read, whom I've read that have, that hold the master's degree, it's such a, geez, I don't want to say it's such a clear delineation because that would be minimizing the talents of my non-master's holders. I just want to say that there is a, a, a technique or a, um, um, a, a flavor to, or I don't know exactly what it is, but boy, can you tell? Really? I, I mean, I'm not surprised. I would say that um, a couple things. One is I got my master's degree a long time ago, you know, 20 years ago. And I think master's programs have probably changed a bit since then. So when I was in it, they definitely, the focus was literary fiction. You were learn, learning to write literary fiction, which is character driven fiction. They really didn't like genre fiction. What was weird was for my submission, I gave them a sample of the genre 
a piece, but you know, it was very high concept genre and they still accepted me. But, <laughs> um, so I think things have changed. And so for most people, if their goal is to write commercial fiction, the kinds of things that you see in the front of Barnes and Noble, you know, when you walk through the door, there's probably master's degree, but I would say you don't need it. Okay. Either way, I think what makes the difference is that you have a dedication to craft and that you constantly try to better yourself. And there's a ton of resources out there. There's videos, there's online programs, just going and listening to writers present at events. Um, reading is super important. And by that, I mean like reading a range of stuff, not just the stuff you would naturally be drawn to, but reading the books that, you know, get mentioned in the newspaper and other people are talking about just to, you know, give you other examples to draw from, because you really learn your craft by examining and analyzing what other writers have done to handle a particular situation. That's a soundbite right there, girlfriend. I'm telling you that right now. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> All right, so let's go back to Lindsay Duncan because she's, uh, I, I love her and I, I'm hoping, hint, hint, I'm hoping we see more of her, yes? Yes, uh, oh. I just handed in the second book in the series a little while ago and it's, um, the editor's taking a look at it. It's called Red London and it's super topical because it has to do with the oligarchs in the UK which are figuring quite a bit into, uh, you know, the Ukraine crisis. Oh, you think? Maybe just a little a bit. Little. Yeah. yeah. Little. It's <laughs> funny, but when I proposed writing about it, I got a lot of feedback like, oh, the oligarchs, that's so 2000s. You know, no one cares about that anymore. So now everyone's interested in it. So pretty, yeah. pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd call that so 2022, if you will, you know. Yeah. Now, I, I, here's a classic question, so forgive my not being thoroughly original at every turn, but how much of Lindsay is in you or vice versa? Because I got Probably not a lot of me in Lindsay. Actually, probably more me and Teresa. Okay. <laughs> I loved writing Teresa because Lindsay's a little younger. Um, I did get uh, one of my years at CIA, I was a recruiter which meant I spent a whole year just recruiting analysts, the next cadre of analysts. So I was on the road a lot, you know, and I really got to see what the people who want to join CIA today, what they're like, and they're different from my generation. So I really drew on a lot of the younger folks that I worked with and whom I met uh, during recruiting to form Lindsay. You know, they have different reasons why they came in. They have different reasons why they stay. Um, different skill sets, all that kind of stuff. Whereas Teresa is slightly older and has a few years in and has had some experiences that end up making her mad at the agency. And um, anyone who's been there for a while is going to be mad at the agency. So yeah, I could really relate to her. Yeah, I got a little sense, uh, maybe on a subconscious level, that, oh, this is clearly uh, coming from experience. Because there's one thing to describe a scene, and then there's another thing to describe a feeling. And and that feeling isn't just your average, oh, oh, she was mad. No, when you layer in some of those things and you go, oh, that that's when you're really writing what you know. Well, thank you. I mean, so I, I get kind of pointed out a lot for um, really providing a lot of psychological insights into characters, really having rich round characters. And a lot of that does come from working in intelligence because you're really trained to 
understand human psychology, right? Understand motivations. Why is somebody doing what they're doing? Especially when we're talking about assets, people who are who we're paying, right, to spy for us. That's a very dangerous thing. It's usually going against your own self-interest. So you really have to understand that person so you can predict how they're, you know, that they're not going to expose you. They're not going to, you know, in a fit of remorse, run to their government and say, I'm spying for CIA. You really have to understand what makes that person tick. And so that in years of watching case officers who are really weird in their own right uh, and tricky in their own right, I think has really kind of helped me develop, you know, characters. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things that you accomplished was, I, I call it kind of taking me inside the system, which there are authors, there's no good or bad about this, but they'll they'll describe the big picture. But with you, I felt like I was an insider. Again, to the thing I just referenced, because there was a particular scene early on where uh, 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 Lindsay is skeptical about uh, be befriending uh, Teresa. And then there's this one character that comes in, this big guy comes in, and she, and he wants to remind her of, oh, yeah, you just wait till this case is over. We're still going to deal with you. That made me go, oh, there's so much of this little, um, not tit for tat, but uh, you're under my thumb. So don't don't you forget that. And you, yeah. you can't but just it, make that up. That's part of work life there is it's control, right? The, yep. the agency has to be able to control you. They have to have a lot of different levers. And you know this going in, you sign up for it. But still, uh, it's funny, it becomes normal to you. And it's not until you leave that you realize most people don't live like that. <laughs> you know, your boss may have a lot of leverage over you, but you're not telling him every absolute secret of your life, everything that embarrassed you or that could come back and bite you in the ass. You know, he doesn't get... Um, you don't have to fill out a form declaring all your financial assets every year <laughs> to him, you know, like it's incredibly invasive and, and yet that's part of the job. Yeah. The thing about having to reveal all your secrets and you'll see this line in television and film sometimes. Okay. Now, David, uh, if there's anything about you, I should know. I'm going to go easy on you if you tell me now, because we're going to dig deep and we're going to find out, <laughs> you know? Right. And some people will, they'll crack, they'll still tell you, but generally you don't. And this was something I really learned in recruiting, believe it or not, because you'd be spending time with these applicants and they'd be telling you all these things and they filled out a lot of forms and, you know, you're looking over all this. But then they go through the security process where they sit down with the security people. And it's usually, especially the first time they get on the polygraph, even though the polygraph is a very flawed machine for doing this kind of thing. It's enough that that often makes some people crack. And then what they don't realize is that, although we tell them, is that we're gonna go out and we're gonna to talk to your friends and we're gonna to talk to other people, not just the people you tell us to talk to. And we're gonna find things out about you. So don't lie to us. Candor is very important. If we don't trust you, we can't hire you. And they swear up and down, they're telling the truth. And then you find out all these things that they thought they could hide from the CIA. It's interesting. Yeah. But yeah, that's the world I live in. So if I feel like someone's not telling me the truth, I'll find out what the truth is. You know, it's so funny. My wife has this, uh, my wife is analytical. So she, I'm right brain creative. She's left brain analytical. I love, oh, let's just daydream about what this could be. And she's like, no, no, no. Show me the spreadsheets, black and white. Right. Yeah. But, and she has this innate ability to just kind of, 
dig into things and find things. I'm like, how'd you find that out? She goes, well, that's my analytical brain at work. You know. <laughs> do you let her uh, do research for you for your books and things? No, uh, it's a combination of things. She is so incredibly busy with, uh, I call it 10 plates in the air, spinning yeah. plates at all time. That There's no way I would ever do that. Plus, you know, it's my thing and it's not her thing. Uh, she loves to read it. She is, she's one of my first go-to, like I pass it to her before my books go anywhere else and say, how'd you like it? And if I get, yeah, this is good. Or, you know, I liked everything except this. I take it into consideration, work on it. That's and then, go for, yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing I wanted to say, and, and I was reading, um, I was on a plane when I was reading this scene. Oh, I know. Yeah, here you go. I'm on the plane when I'm reading the opening scene on one of my oh. trips. And it is one of my biggest nightmares. My wife has a similar nightmare in that she she has kind of claustrophobic. I won't go into that. But mine is what this scene is. And I'm not going to say the scene because I don't want to, I want people to pick up this book and j just read the opening scene. And if you don't find yourself going, okay, hold on a second. I got honey, put the kids take care. I'm, I'm, I'm on this book, right? So I'm so excited about it. Uh, so I'm reading that and I don't want to give too much away. So can you give me a nice little a synopsis of the story so that I don't give it away, but know that they've got an opening scene is just killer. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's a little hard to give a synopsis of the book, but basically you have Lindsay Duncan, the main character, who is an up and coming agent officer at CIA, who ends up getting recalled, which is a very heart stopping experience if you're in the business, because it means you've done something wrong. She gets yanked back to Washington, but it's actually sort of a cover. Her boss, who's the chief of Russia division, suspects there's a mole in CIA. And they're not sure if it's coming out of CIA or coming out of Moscow Station, which is the CIA you know, office over in Russia. But she's worked at both. So she's a great person to, to be the one to try to track down the mole because she knows how both offices operate. And while she's doing that and trying to figure out what's going on, and you know, as, as you pointed out, kind of still under the wary eye of security because she did this bad thing that got her recalled from, from where she was, Beirut. Um, she befriends Teresa Warner, who is a, a former sort of it girl in the Russia division, uh, slightly older than and still working there, slightly older than Lindsay. But her husband was killed in an operation in Moscow a few years earlier. And that's ended up sort of putting her under a cloud for various reasons. And um, so she befriends Teresa, who's a little on the outs with everybody right now. Um, and it ends up leading to this big secret that Lindsay was never meant to uncover that could really um, uh, take down some big people. So I, I'll leave it at that. And that's the thing. And that's the thing that keeps you riveted. And it's like it puts a hook in your neck and it just pulls. You're not getting away from it because you plant that seed early on. Somebody else did this recently and I loved it. It was Scott Blackburn. And I was making this comment, and, and this is a great comment to make. When you can find that little hook that maybe either you haven't seen before or you haven't seen it done this way, and it pulls you in first, but it doesn't reveal it, and it just does this slow pull like you did, and uh, and you keep subconsciously, you're not even aware of it, you're like, well, well, what did she do? What's Why was she recalled? What's that thing? What's that thing? And, it, and you, <laughs> you can't stop, right? Oh, thank you. It, it was a really interesting, fun story to write. First of all, it was uh, modeled on Gone Girl, 
which was, you know, such a big hit for a lot of reasons. And one is because it had such big reveals, very twisty, uh, use multiple points of view. So I wanted to use that basic framework. So if you read the book, you'll see the second point of view, which is Teresa's comes in. I can't remember. I think it's about the halfway point or so. And everything changes. Once she's in there, everything you think you know is sort of thrown up in the air. And then there's another big twist at the end. And I was lucky enough that my editor at Putnam is Sally Kim, and she did work on Gone Girl with Gillian Flynn. And so she knew what the objective was in the book. So it's a, in some ways it's deceptive, but it's a very writerly book. There's like a lot of writerly technique, you know, that's integral to how the story gets told. This would be a great primer on how to write a thriller like this, because oh, like, you. well, like you said that it's the writerly stuff that pulls you in, you go, wow, that technique. And matter of fact, we're gonna take a short break and when we come back, we're gonna talk about a technique that Alma taught me, she doesn't even realize she did it, uh, in writing, and it's gonna, I, I find it fascinating, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back on The Thriller Zone. Man, do I like coffee. And as much as I don't wanna sound like a bean snob, I am, there I said it. I mean, once you've tried fresh roasted coffee, why would you settle for anything else, right? That's why I'm happy to announce a new sponsor to the Thriller Zone, Writer's Block Coffee. Why Writer's Block Coffee? Here's why, super easy. The coffee is naturally processed, which means the way the coffee cherries are harvested uses much less water than the big brands. That benefits the environment and the economic and political stability of the places coffee's grown, such as Ethiopia, which is where they make their flagship Writer's Block Coffee. Also, their coffee is specialty grade, which scores in the 80s on a scale of 1 to 100. That means the beans are in the top 5% of the world in terms of quality. Woo, I love this. They donate a percentage of their profits to an organization called First Book. It's a nonprofit that supports literacy with kids. It's a great cause that helps build the next generation of readers. And perhaps my favorite, their coffee is roasted to order. That means the beans do not sit on a shelf, but are roasted and shipped only after you order. Might take a little bit longer, but I'll tell you something. You're going to smell the difference the minute you open your mailbox. And here is the winning round. Here's the tasty bonus. Order today and get 15% off your first order with the code THETHRILLERZONE. Try Writer's Block Coffee and taste the difference of roasted to order. Hi, this is Alma Katsu. I'm the author of Red Widow, and I'm here today with David Temple on The Thriller Zone. And welcome back to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. We are with Alma Katsu. And Alma, please don't take offense to this. I'm from the South originally, and your name, when I go to write it, I always want to say Kudzu. Yeah, I know. But it's a great way for me to remember it. And I, the way I see it is any way I can remember your name is brilliant, right? Very, very much so, yes. Anyway, welcome back to the show. And uh, as I said before the break, I've learned a technique from you, Alma. And it's something I love about this podcast is I get to talk to so many awesome people, authors, writers, wannabes, established, etc., uh, that have to do with books and movies and film. And I'm just blown away by the vast amount of talent that is out there creating work today is yeah. evidenced with you. But I'm always learning something. 
And it's the way you release information. This is going to sound really super simplistic to some people, but it's the way you release information inside a conversation on either side of the actual dialogue. Meaning, you don't have the characters necessary necessarily say a lot of the background and supporting information, but you, you'll you say enough that establishes the character, then you pepper the conversation with backstory in short bursts, which means the story is constantly moving. So applause for that technique. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, when you write genre, you're really, and by genre, I mean more like science fiction, fantasy, the stuff that I, I sort of started out. And it's a real... Um, problem in that you know a lot of times you have to do a lot of weird world building so a lot of backstory and when you start out the temptation is to put these big chunks of it right these big expositional chunks which people tolerate a little bit more in science fiction but not so much in other stories and so you really have to teach yourself to get away from that and to just narrow it down to the pieces that are important for readers to to know not nice to have uh, otherwise you bore them and um, just figure out the most artful ways to sort of weave that in. So thank you. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. And I mean it with all my heart. And I'm going to say it again. This would this is a not only just a fun rip roaring read and, and technically uh, proficient, but it's a great primer in how to do it right. So there. <clears throat> thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Now, I do want to go back to your earlier years. I, I meant to ask you, uh, early on, well, you referenced that you'd want to, always wanted to write. So, did you always want to write? And is it, it's clear with your track record that you always wanted to serve in one of the agencies? It has to be. But but was being a published author always kind of like at the forefront? And how far back is that? So this will probably surprise you. I didn't always want to be working intelligence. I actually didn't think I. It didn't even cross my mind when I was growing up. So, you know, like a lot of writers, I was one of those kids that was always reading, right? Kind of a loner, introvert. Um, I was always in the library, in the stacks, reading books. As a matter of fact, my first job was as a page in the library because I just spent so much time there. The librarians took pity on me and offered <laughs> me the job. But, um, you know, I grew up in a different time, pre-internet, and uh, came from a small town, not a very worldly family. So I had no idea how you become a writer. And the only thing I could see where you could make a living from it was to be a newspaper reporter. So that's kind of what I thought I'd do. And I was a stringer when I was in high school. So jump ahead, I'm getting ready to graduate from college. And everybody's telling you, you know, if you wanna be a novelist, you need to have some life experiences. You're too young, you're too inexperienced. So I had heard about um, applying to NSA, National Security Agency. And back then, nobody knew anything about NSA, even less than we know today. But there was a lot of wacky stories about it. So I thought, well, I'll apply. And just applying was weird enough. And that was an experience. But they did offer me a job. And so I thought, well, I'll go just for the building the life experience thing. I'll stay a few years and then I'll leave. Well, I stayed for over 30 years. It was an amazing career back then, uh, not quite, especially for NSA, which has very peculiar needs. There weren't always degree programs to train people for the kinds of things they needed. So they hired for aptitude. And someone like me would not be hired by them today. We have too many really talented people coming out of the college pipeline and elsewhere. But um, yeah, so this story wouldn't happen today. But, you know, it was a happy coincidence. And, and when you start there, especially back then, they really didn't like you doing things on the outside. 
even if it had nothing to do with intelligence. So I stopped writing entirely. I was a music journalist at the time and I dropped my columns and I didn't write again for 15 years until I turned 40 and decided that I wanted to give it a try again, but more as a, like for personal fulfillment than thinking I was going to have a publishing career. Two things I love about that story. One is uh, you were referencing starting at 40, quote unquote, and then having a real hit by the 50s. And, you know, people are always going, oh, I'm getting too old to start here. But I always reference stories like, I want to say, I think Don Winslow wasn't even a big hit until he was like the 50s. And, you know, right. uh, yeah, uh, Jeffrey, uh, 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 why is he blanking on me? Thinking of Jeff No, no, but he talking about prolific anyway point being it's funny how we sometimes get caught up in the um yeah i'm too old for that and i say bah humbug oh uh look at uh, rick blyweiss who came out with the uh, pinion scorpion this barbershop yeah. detective story i mean he's 77 that's his first book i mean yeah right well luckily age is is sort of you know, good for writing. It, it just gives you more experiences and, you know, to choose from, and it gives you, you have more context and perspective. I'm not saying young people can't write. There's certainly been a lot of young writers who've written very good books. I'm just saying it's not a obstacle to writing. Right. It's like seasoning on cooking, right? And the other phrase I really love is happy coincidence. Sometimes people will see that happy coincidence and they'll go, oh, it's just a coincidence. I see them as blessings in life that go that push you forward that like oh uh, that popped up in my path and maybe I should go that way and sometimes that's the exact way you should go right right absolutely um early on I just sort of um decided that you know I I just didn't want to have the kind of life where I'm sorry I didn't pursue different opportunities so I just really try to be open to to trying new things not so much now I'm not going to go bungee jumping or something off a giant bridge (laughs) but you know I like to try things and you know it it certainly helps keep your brain younger too you know to try new things every few years yeah you don't you don't have to rip your hips out of sockets just to learn something no Right. Absolutely. Not to know, you have to do it to know that it's kind of crazy. Yeah. I will say this though. Uh, I, I had a lot of friends back in the day who were, um, para, you know, they love to jump out of planes and I thought that's so insane. And then one day I'm like, yeah, I got to do that. And I did it. And, um, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Those first couple of seconds, <laughs> The what's rushing through your mind, besides the fact that all that wind is hitting you and you can barely catch your breath, is that I just jumped out of a perfectly good plane to (laughs) soar into the wide unknown. And I hope this ends well, but exhilarating. It usually does end well. So, yeah. Yeah, not me. I I mean, I know that if I had to, I would. Yeah. But but why do it just for fun? It's how I look at it. Yeah, sure. Before we get to uh, rapid fire questions and kind of things wrap things up, I want to ask you this. Oh, I want to I want to make sure I hit this first. Is the uh, Lindsay Duncan sequels coming out next next year? Right, what month? Right, probably around March twenty twenty three. Okay, and the fervor, which is your historical horror, is coming out actually this like it, in just days, like in a week. Yeah, April twenty sixth. Okay, so wait a minute. If if Red Widow came out in March and the fervor's coming out in April, does that mean we can look for something every month for the rest of the year? 
<laughs> I don't even know if I can keep this schedule up with one new book a year. It's, it's tough, especially now I'm trying to fold TV into all this too. It's a lot. All right, stop the presses. I completely, uh, I heard that. I jumped on it in my mind, but I didn't stay with it because I'm a huge fan of turning uh, projects into TV and film. So tell me, is it Red Widow that's going into TV? Yes, we were very lucky in that Fox acquired the film rights. They picked up the option um, before the... I, before the book was published? I think so, because they've had it for almost two years now. And they were very committed to it. So we've been chugging right along. Um, and right now, this week, as a matter of fact, I'm waiting to hear whether or not they're going to green light um, that we can start filming the um, pilot. We had a change in executive leadership at Fox a little while ago, and they wanted a rewrite of the pilot. So it's dragged out a little bit longer, but, but we're hoping we're going to proceed. And then this week, we're pitching the hunger for a TV series. You are living my ultimate dream. You realize that? I'm super lucky. I know. And super, super lucky. And I have a great team of people around me who really work to get things done. Uh, this is where you would uh, insert shout outs to your uh, tribe if you'd like to go right ahead. <laughs> well, my agent is Richard Pine, who is the president of Inkwell Management. He's a super, super agent, has a lot of, uh, I'm the lowest rung on his ladder of clients. Um, so I'm very, very lucky to have him. And uh, Eliza Rothstein, who is uh, one of the other agents at the agency, and she's super good. Um, and Angela Chang Kaplan is my film rights agent. You are living the dream, Alma. So lucky, really unbelievably lucky. It's hard, you know, it's hard to sustain a career in publishing. It is not easy. And I, and I you know, I, I want to make sure that I don't uh, belittle this, but I do. I've been in, in and around Hollywood a better part of my entire life, both radio, TV and film. And so I do know that you can get picked up uh, you know, you, you can buy the option and people can sit on it for more years, maybe decades yeah. even. And sometimes it never gets done. Sometimes they pick it up in order for you not to have it picked up by somebody else. Yeah, that does happen. <laughs> yeah. But you're so close. I have a feeling and fi double fingers crossed that you're, uh, yeah, there you go, <laughs> that you're going to get it into uh play. And uh, that's going to come up in rapid fire questions. But before we do that, I do have this one question. I ask a similar question of all my guests. So with six novels under your belt and a master's, what is the single best piece of advice you would give writers? Now, this could be up and coming. This could be published. This could be people who are just toying with the idea. But if you had to boil it down to like one or two ideas, what would that be? Well, that's really tough because... Two audiences, very different, published authors and people who are up and coming. I mean, what certainly applies to everybody, but I would hope if you're a published author, you already understand this, is to read what we talked about earlier. Read a lot and read diversely. Don't just read in your genre because that's what's going to make you a better writer and that's going to kind of make your, yeah, your books better. Um, for people who are already, like who sold their first book or just starting out, it's really easy to underestimate how important networking is. You really have to build your community, your tribe um, in the writer's community, usually within your genre, because these people are not your competition. 
these people, you're going to help each other get along. You're going to blurb each other. You're going to be on panels together at conferences. You're going to recommend, you know, somebody's going to lose their agent. Somebody else is going to help them find a new one, or you're going to compare notes on an editor who wants to acquire your book. So really make the effort to become part of the community. Don't think that they're going to come to you, you know, attend writers conferences, go to writers readings, follow them on social media. I mean, don't stalk them. I've had people follow me and immediately ask me to blurb the book they're working on. Don't do that. <laughs> but, um, you know, follow them and kind of see how they handle themselves and, and get to know them. And if you like their work, then genuinely, you know, instigate a friendship there. Yeah, that is such solid advice. Yeah. Stalking and following are two different things. <laughs> you want to help folks, but you can't help everybody. And so, you know, sometimes, and I did it too, you're trying to sell your book or trying to get out there before the book is ready. And so, you know, you might get a little pushback. And if you get that pushback, you might ask yourself, you know, maybe I'm not as ready as I think I am. Yeah. Excellent. Folks, I hope you're listening. Okay. Now it is time for rapid fire questions. Do not let your palms sweat. This is not hard. <laughs> All right, Alma, you're given the job to work alongside Lindsay Duncan in an, on a new case. What is the one thing you think you'd bring to the dangerous situation that would help e- help keep the case moving smoothly? In other words, what's your best instincts on the job? Well, uh, I'm a really good analyst and being an analyst means understanding, right? The 360 of something. And I've been a manager. I mean, I've managed some huge projects. I'm a bit of a control freak. So I'll probably be sort of shepherding her along. (laughs) I don't know that she'd appreciate it though. Oh, fair enough. All right, fair enough. All right, here's a two-part question. I'm kind of famous for it. You've just landed a new book contract and have found yourself on a long train ride on the next case. Uh, what is the album or genre of music you'll be listening to on this long train ride? We don't have to worry about where it is and so forth. And will you be crafting an outline or will you pants the book? Well, let me do it in reverse order. I always outline. Like if you're writing a thriller, especially, it would be really hard to pants it. Although I know writers who do. Who do. Um, but I mean, I use spreadsheets <laughs> to keep track of everything that's going on. And that's mostly for the revision process because then it's easier for me to find the precise place where things happen or you know where a cascading event starts and all that kind of stuff. They're super complicated. I call yeah. them like the most complicated Jenga puzzles in the world. Um, as far as the music is concerned, I actually don't listen to music when I write and I haven't for a long time. Uh, probably just because I'm afraid of words getting stuck in my head. If I really need to concentrate and it's been a while and I'm having a hard time getting into something, I use um, oral brainwave tapes sometimes. And that's just, it almost sounds like white noise, but the the oral patterns are sort of embedded in the noise. And it just really, for some reason, it helps me focus. And I'll only need to do that like for a day. and, And then usually I can jump right back in. Have you heard of binaural beats? No, yeah. I forget the name of the one that I use. Well, there's a technique. It, it, it uh, piggybacks on what you're just saying. There's a binaural beat that you can embed inside of music, and it will bounce from uh, spheres of your brain electronically and subtly. And what it does is it somehow creates this ability to just focus on what you're doing. Huh. 
That must be what it is. It's super good. <laughs> All right. You're celebrating the fact that Hollywood has just bought Red Widow to put on the big spring. Oh, we just found that out. Who knew that before I even done? And you get to act as executive producer in this particular role, which means you get to choose the lead. Who's going to play Lindsay Duncan? That's a really tough one. We started having that conversation, believe it or not. What makes it tough is I don't watch as much TV and movies as I should. So I'm not as good with like the current batch of actors and actresses. So I actually don't have an opinion on this. I have more of an opinion on Teresa. Fair enough. Let's do this and make it that way. I pictured uh, Kate Blanchett the whole time that I was writing that 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 character. And I still do. Of course, that's never going to happen. But she would be the perfect Teresa. Wait, 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 wait. This is dreamscape time. You can dream as big as you want. Who knows? You do not know, young lady. Kate might read this book on a her own train ride and go, oh, I've got to play Teresa. It's a great role. <laughs> I would encourage her to think about it. <laughs> Let's get a raging on the phone, right? All right. All right. Part of that same question. Now, Hollywood has asked you to make a cameo scene in one of the roles. It can be as small or as big as you want. It doesn't matter. Who would that be and why? And of course, for folks reading Red Widow, you'd have to know the characters. But for the sake of this fun game, she gets to play along don't they usually only make let authors do like really tiny cameo roles you know like being the cashier in this in the cafeteria or something like that alma here's what you don't understand about your new friend david temple i'm a big big dreamer i dream as big as i possibly can i don't like to play by the rules and that's a whole other story about being a pk growing up but anyway we're not rule followers i don't you know rules are made to be broken so in my world, you dream as big as you can, and it doesn't matter. So you can be anybody you want, young lady. I don't know. Maybe I'd be one of the officers down at the National Security Council. Okay. Yeah. I never did do that, but that would be interesting. I went down there a lot, but um, that's probably like such a wonkish thing that most people won't understand what a wonky job that is. But wonkish thing i'm gonna add that to my vocabulary wonkish i do know wonky so i guess it's a derivative of wonky right well, wonks policy wonks down in in dc they're the you know people that sit in these really boring jobs and are super obsessed with the details of whatever thing they work whether it's europe or russia or you know that sort of thing that sounds like people who would really love spreadsheets and excels and all that I stuff i right? love spreadsheets oh that's why i write all my outlines and stuff are in excel and well, as an analyst we spend a lot of time with spreadsheets i'm breaking out in the hive just thinking about a young lady all right Big finale, last question. You and your husband are invited to join my wife and I for a nice celebratory dinner here in San Diego. It's our treat before you launch your book tour, which, by the way, is going to start at Warwick's down in La Jolla. Insert plug alert here. You can invite two people to join us for that dinner. We'd love to just enlarge the conversation. They can be living or past. It can be as big. This is back to Dream Factory. Be as big as you want. Who would those two folks be and why? You're really good at like wishing things. I'm not good at wishing things. 
I mean, I'd love, unfortunately he's passed, but John LaCarre, I'd love to talk to him. I'm sure he would be fascinating to spend an evening with. So Who great. else? Wow, one person is, is like more than I could hope for. I don't know. Well, see, that's the thing. Um, if you don't dream big, can you live as big? I don't think so. Right, right. <laughs> Honestly, you're, I'm sure you're right. Um, I don't know. I'm taking this so seriously. I love Denise Minna. I've never had a chance to meet her. She's a Scottish writer, crime writer. She had a, a relatively big book uh, very recently called Conviction, but she's been writing a long time and she's brilliant. And now she's doing television, I think, in Scotland. Her name again? Denise Minna, M-I-N-A. Denise Minna. She's fabulous. Denise Minna and John Le Carre. That sounds like, I mean, that's a, per, that's a quadrifecta. Wait. It would be fun. Yeah, that is fun. Okay, well, superb answers. And I hope you walk away, Alma, after leaving the Thriller Zone thinking, I'm going to dream even bigger. I hope so. You're an inspiration. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Hey, folks, if you'd like to learn more about Alma, visit almakatsubooks.com. It's a gorgeous website. And when you get to, let me take a second here. If you go to books and you pull up the books page, just look at the saturated colors and the gorgeous, deeply engaging covers. Bam. Oh, thank you. You don't get that everywhere, young lady. I'm going to tell you that right now. Ilsa Brink, that's the website designer. She's fabulous. Man, okay. And also, besides the website, you can follow her, as I do on Twitter, at Alma Katsu. Alma, this has been truly magnificent. What a fun time. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, I've had a great time. It's, I love listening to your voice. You've got an amazing voice. Thank you. And uh, if you haven't learned, uh, haven't listened to the podcast, we have oodles and oodles. We've been at this since June. We're coming up on our uh, first year anniversary. Matter of fact, I think you're going to be episode like number, I don't know, 62. So yeah, there's plenty to listen to. And so many talented people on the show. I'm, I'm just a lucky, lucky guy. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. Because, you know, authors, we need all the help we can get, right? This is very generous of you. Alma, you're a sweetheart. I'll get out of your hair because you got stuff to do. But thank you again. You do too. But I'm going to have to shovel snow. It's snowing here. Thank you so much. This was a lot. I know. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I'll see <laughs> you. See you later. Bye-bye. Man, thanks again, Alma. You are delightful. And this book is a heck of a read, Red Widow. Now, how about this coming Thursday? Coming up on the 28th, a book I've been waiting to get my hands on. I have not read it yet, but I will by then. Peter Ferris, The Devil Himself. Check it out. This is getting all kinds of buzz. Rolling Stone calls it Southern War Set to an Infernal Tempo. That's the kind of book I want to get my hands on. Plus, I'm from the South, so I think there's going to be all kinds of things I can relate to. Thank you again to our new sponsors, Writer's Block Coffee, as you heard in the show. Uh, very excited about having a new sponsor. And of course, always thanks to AuthorBytes.com for sponsoring this show. You know, it takes a lot to put this thing together. By the time we uh, record it and edit it, both audio and video, that would be audio on all your podcast channels and video on YouTube.com slash The Thriller Zone. Finally. So thank you so much. And thanks for the nice comments and the five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. You can always go there and leave us a review. We won't be hating on that. <laughs> Folks, make it a great week. And I will see you next time right here with another thrilling episode of The Thriller Zone. 
There was a time I built my own websites. <laughs> I was pretty good at it, but it took a lot of time and a lot of energy, and it was not without challenges. I mean, I built them on Squarespace and TypePad and WordPress and GoDaddy and Wix, but in the end, it was kind of more hassle than it was worth. And then, then when it came time to get hacked, I, I, I just had it. Then, on top of this, when I decided to become a full-time writer, and I, I said, you know, I need a website that shows who I am and does it well, and I don't have to worry about it, and they take care of everything, including getting hacked, which has never happened, ever. I researched some of the biggest guys in the industry. A lot of those names you know. I wanted to play with the big boys, too. So you know what I did? I found the company, AuthorBytes.com. AuthorBytes.com takes care of everything 24-7. It has been delightful. And fortunately, to help pay for the show, they've become a sponsor. They did it last month. They liked the results so well, they're coming back for another round. And I'm pretty excited about it. If you will use the code THETHRILLERZONE, they will simply give you three months free with a one-year contract. What? Yes, there is still free in the world. Sign up for a one-year contract. Get three months free using the code THETHRILLERZONE. And do like I did. Let the professionals handle it. Slide the keyboard away. Forget about the software and the updates and the plugins and all that craziness. Let the professionals do it. Have peace of mind. AuthorBytes.com the Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.